Welcome back to Ars Arcanum, an exploration of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere universe. I'm Nora, I'm joined by Mark. Hi, that's me. And I'm joined by Autumn. Hi, that's me. Go ahead, quietly put your mug down on the coffee table. I needed something chocolatey and we're out of <laughs> Oreos. Do you want me to turn off the AC? I'll turn off the AC. You vamp. Okay. So, uh, Mark, have you read any books in the last two weeks? Yeah, uh, I think two weeks ago I was already reading Three Parts Dead, right? So I probably mentioned mm-hmm. that on the podcast already. I finished it last night, um, kind of unwisely stayed up until like 3 a.m. Uh, oh, no. reading it. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a thriller, so it gets really exciting and dramatic at like the climax yeah. Um, you find the, out all the details about how the murder happened. The only time I can remember doing this myself, because um, I just don't stay up reading anymore, uh, I think one time, I think it was Chamber of Secrets, was the only time <laughs> I stayed up late reading a book that I can remember. <laughs> or uh, Eldest, it was Finishing Eldest. Mm. Well... I had this. That, I mean, that makes sense. I had this a little bit recently with uh, Rhythm of War, but it's like a very different feeling because it's just like a page turner, and like I had to know how it ended. I wasn't trying to like find out all of Brandon's secrets, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this was basically that—that that it's like a page turner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've also been reading um, uh, a different book called *The City and the City* by Chana Mieville. I've been wanting um, to read this forever. It's pretty good. I mean, I'm not done with it, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's very, like, moody and atmospheric. It, like, it's extremely um, about, like, a cop who hates his life, which I hear some people we know love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Word on the street. <laughs> um, and uh, it's also, like... It's fun because it has this, like, one central kind of weird science fictional thing going on. Um, but it doesn't really state clearly at any point, especially not near the beginning of the book, what that thing is. Because this is just uh, a situation that defines the entire lives of people who live in this city. And so uh, the, like, viewpoint character doesn't, like explain it he just like talks about his life and about the murder investigation he's doing and you kind of slowly have to piece together okay what is the deal with this city he lives in Bejel, and this other city Olkioma, which is somehow like overlaid on it i don't think it's a spoiler to say somehow these two cities coexist in space Mm -hmm. um and how and why that's the case and what the deal is with like people crossing that space and like being 
what what might exist in between those cities or uh, what happens when someone goes from one to another. Um, you just kind of have to uh, figure it out as you go along, and it's cool. I, I remember... This is so dumb. I remember Rob Zachney describing this book on a <laughs> podcast one time, and I've thought to myself for literal years now, I need to check that out, and it still sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. China Mayville is, is fun. I think his writing has a lot of uh, a lot of good mood. Um, uh, I do feel like I should mention, not that this is like a... This is not a, a, a huge concern in a certain sense on our Brandon Sanderson podcast, but China Mieville is a little bit canceled. Um, oh. Well, basically, uh, he was um, a really horrible boyfriend to someone. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and, you know, that kind of, like, came out online and... Uh, you know, as usually happens with these things, it doesn't really seem to have negatively affected his career... But yeah, yeah, it feels like so many of these things happen and there's a lot of hand wringing about cancel culture, but you can still just continue to be a like famous novelist despite it all, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't actually think uh, he is canceled in the sense that like he has seen negative consequences. And it's also, you know, um, the degree of like awful shit that he's uh, apparently done is like, uh... You know, um, I mean, it's also hard to, unfortunately, as often happens with these things, um, you can't actually find out the details about what he did because uh, the woman who talked about it got fucking harassed and had to take it down. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I just sort of feel like I want to mention that before being like, oh, yeah, China Me Evil, go read all his books. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, we're talking about Brandon Sanderson here, who is an <laughs> active member of the LDS church. So, <laughs> yeah. I fell into a Brandon Sanderson Reddit hole for like an hour or two the other day and one discovered that there is now a transgender character in one of his books. We'll get there when we get there. And two in this Reddit thread discovered that um, somebody was like, oh, well, we should all really applaud Brandon for including a transgender character. Um, uh, considering he used to be homophobic a few years ago, and somebody replying, Brandon Sanderson was homophobic a few years ago, and oh my god, he's being like, he is a member of the LDS Church, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, and holds views like commiserate with most people I in the even... LDS Church. <laughs> I don't even think. I mean. I am sure there are, like, gay Mormons mm-hmm. who are doing their best out there. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not really sure you can say that someone has stopped being homophobic if they are continuing to be a Mormon and are not, like, taking any kind of public stances. Like, mm-hmm. you can't be part of an organization that is definitively homophobic and not be doing anything about it, and not be homophobic. You know what I mean? You right. can stop saying homophobic shit in public, but... Yeah, but you're still supporting a structure that, like, oppresses people. And, yeah. like, you know, he is part of BYU, and, um, you know, our friend Grace, who will probably be on the podcast at some point, like, could talk more about this, but, like, 
BYU does a lot of things to discriminate against queer students, you know? And to my knowledge, yeah. Brandon hasn't done anything about that, you know? Um, still affiliates yeah. himself with the university, so. We, yeah, I don't want to speak out of turn because it's not a thing I know a great deal about. And we actually, at some point, will probably have somebody who, like, has direct Knows experience with these things. And so, like... But yeah, yeah, I don't think I don't think anything we've said is a stretch, you know. <laughs> no. Yeah, I just think it's very funny to think about like homophobia as as being limited explicitly to the things you say on the record. Yes, and homophobia being like a switch that you turn on and off in your heart. <laughs> and he, yeah. yeah, he flipped it off and put a trans character in his book, and now the slate is wiped clean. Um, yeah, especially because like uh, people who are, you know, homophobic, transphobic, never put people like that in their fiction. That's never, never happened once in the history of the world. <laughs> <sighs> but they put a gay guy in that last Marvel movie. The very last one. Oh my they, god. They put a gay guy in the last Marvel movie and they made the director play him. <laughs> is the director gay? Is this no. like a personal... Oh. No, he is not. As far as we know, me, you know. No, he's definitely fucking not. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mostly first said of all, it because I... I was like, I don't want to be wrong. Because I one time got really mad at, um, my company had a bunch of pride shirts with a Lady Gaga quote on them. And I got all like up in arms like, this is stupid. I can't believe they had a straight person like qu do a quote for pride t-shirts. And then found out Lady Gaga is gay. And so I wanted to cover my ass in the smallest possible way. <laughs> No, he's not fucking gay. Uh, uh, I think, uh, okay, I'm not completely, po but I believe the director we're talking about is uh, Kevin Feig? Kevin uh, Feige? I, I think, I think it was one of the Russo brothers. Sorry, who like, no, yeah. Anthony Russo is the one yeah. who played an unnamed gay character. Yeah, he's not fucking gay. Nora, <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you read any books? I was going to ask you. Okay, I'll go. Uh, I read uh, Red Harvest, which is like a... Ooh, I don't even know when this book came out. Like, it could be... I'm going to say 37. 39? Uh, I don't know why I'm doing... I'm Googling Dashiell Hammett, the author, and not the book itself. Now, be careful when you type in Red Harvest, because you'll you also get... you will get the Star Wars novel. The Star Wars novel, Red Harvest. 29. <laughs> 1929. But it's, it's kind of confusing, because the book was serialized yes. in, like, newspapers. Anyway... Red Harvest. That's that's how you know you're getting the good shit when something was originally serialized. <laughs> uh, by Dashiell Hammett. Um, the thing that I knew Dashiell Hammett for was writing the book and perhaps also the film uh, Maltese Falcon. Uh, I have not read Maltese Falcon, but I've seen Maltese Falcon, a very like famous Humphrey Bogart movie. I also read this book. You also read this book. What did you think of it? I didn't like it as much as you did, I think. Yeah, I guess I should, before getting into impressions, I should give, like, a brief outline of what the book is, which is that um, a guy, an unnamed detective, who's referred to in sort of, like, fandom, quote-unquote, as much as, like, 30s detective novels have fandoms. <laughs> in the um, way we call it fandom, at least. Yeah. Um, as the Continental Op. The Continental Op is, uh, like, <clears throat> brought to this 
Northern California town uh, by a guy named Donald Wilson who owns all the newspapers in town, or owns the big newspaper in town. Um, and before he gets there, he er, he's to go to a meeting with Donald Wilson, and the night that he arrives, Donald Wilson is murdered before he can ever meet with him. Uh, so he investigates the murder, he solves the murder, but in the process is like, oh, the chief of police is really corrupt, and the whole town is run by a few gang leaders, and, um, like, decides that he's gonna clean up all the corruption in, um, in, it's called Personville, but there's a, a cute detective novel sort of thing where everybody refers to it as Poisonville. Oh, that's uh-huh. sick. And first, uh, Wilson's dad hires mm. him to clean up the town, to just clean it all up, and he decides to solve the murder, and then he's, then the, the guy's like, alright, I'm gonna pay you and you're gonna leave, and he's like, no, no, no. One, you hired me to clean up the town, and two, I'm so pissed off about the... The, the chief of police the has action, tried to kill me. All the action scenes I've been in have pissed me off enough that I'm going to clean up this town, and I'm going to clean up your shit, too. Yeah. Um, and so, the, the, kind of the second part of the novel is this thing that was like a huge inspiration for uh, Yojimbo, apparently, um, where... Um, the detective is kind of like going to the cops and giving them certain information that gets them to do a strike against like the gang leaders and then going to the gang leaders and double crossing the cops. But actually now he's got more information than the gang leaders that he can give to the cops. And he's like constantly like playing both sides against each other to get each other to get them to take each other down. Uh, And then like kind of the third act of the novel is that there is another murder that, um, this detective thinks he might have done, but isn't sure. <laughs> um, Wait, he himself? Yeah. Like, he, he thinks, oh. There is a chance mm. that he murdered this person, and he's, like, pretty sure he didn't do it. Everclear is involved. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, that's great, though. Like, um, whenever uh, there's some... Like in a in a, it sounds like this isn't strict like exactly a, a mystery novel so much as it's a crime novel, but maybe has like yeah. mystery novel elements. It, yeah, it uh, has it has a mystery novel in the first like four chapters. It has a, mm. a mystery novel in the first four chapters and the last four chapters, and then the middle of the book is for some people the most interesting part, where he's like getting to know the town and like playing all these factions against each other. For me, that's where the book kind of like lost a lot of momentum. But I that is like. That part of the book is like most people's favorite part. So mm-hmm. the um, uh, the thing I was just about to say is that it's always sick when in a mystery uh, the detective is somehow implicated. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes. I, I think. Well, okay. I was about to say the name of a famous mystery where that's true, but I shouldn't fucking say that because that's like the biggest spoiler you could give. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's just it's sick is all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it is sick. Um, I felt like maybe because of its serialized nature that this book kind of meandered a bit too much. Yeah, they, I definitely in the after the first murder is solved and before before the second murder happens. I mean, 
the other thing is that lots of murders happen in between those, but there's no investigation into them. But in between the first... fight scenes and yeah. then shootouts. Like, yeah. They don't count, quote-unquote. Yeah. In between the two big investigations, I I kind of lost a lot of interest in this novel. But the two investigations at the either end of it, I thought were really good. There was that stretch with the guy in the car when they go out for the night. Yes, okay. Where I was just like... What are, we, what are we doing here? What did we stumble into? What did, where is this going? Uh-huh. We're just driving uh-huh. <laughs> out of town for the night. So, but yeah. So my broad thought about this book is a little more like I. So the reason that both of us read this is that um, it's one of M's favorite books, and M was like, "Oh, it was a big thing, uh, big influence on Disco Elysium," uh, and so you and I just you reading the book because of that and then i read the book because you described it and i was like i think i probably will like this more than nora did <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, you did i think um it was fun i i it didn't like i didn't li- i liked it a lot at first mm-hmm. and then i thought that that's what the whole book was gonna be and then it gets wrapped up you should you should maybe read some agatha christie poirot stuff because the probably. first that's probably the first part of the book is him going around town interviewing people and the two Agatha Chris and, and like I think that's really good. I think that's where detective fiction like really clicks for me is when a guy is just interviewing a whole bunch of people and like you get all these snippets of character and setting. Um uh, and the two Agatha Christie novels I've read uh particularly Mor- Murder on the Orient Express like is just that he's just walking around this train like interviewing all these characters and then at the end he's like and this is how the murder happened did you get the version on audible i did i did the police chief's like that's just fine it's just (laughs) fine yeah (laughs) um no but my like more like broad like cultural thought about this novel that I, i hit into at some point there is um there's like a dream sequence partway through this novel that was that was interesting to me because like if you watch enough like art movies from like the 40s to the 70s you realize that like most of them are about guys being really sad and doing violence to like sublimate all their sadness and then like meeting a girl and being like you will be like how i sort of like try to escape this violence i hope these wires don't get crossed (laughs) yeah exactly but then the girl is like really into all the violence and she and like then there's always like a dream sequence because like all these writers are really into freud uh and then at the end there's even more violence and the guy is just really sad and he like is either dead or goes home and is still sad and nothing has changed. And all of that's just in this book from 1929. (laughs) Like, it's all just there. And it was really interesting to see, like, oh, all these directors I liked read this book or watched movies that were inspired by this book. (laughs) You know? I I, I bet it's not... I mean, a lot of what you just described sounds to me like... Not to say that this book itself is not highly influential, it clearly is, but it also sounds like you just kind of gave a description of, like, a certain slice of, like, pulp in general, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, Because, like, one of the movies I was thinking about that 
to me, I could see there's sirens outside of our apartment. Um, to me, I could see this movie in this book so clearly was Breathless, which is a lot more meandering than this book. But like, yeah, Breathless is 100% like Godard trying to make like pulpy adventure shit uh, and try to also like jerk himself off while doing it. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Who you're totally us? right. Like, this is absolutely, like, what Pulp was. is like, men being sad and, like, trying to never say their feelings by, like, drowning it all in, like, booze, action, and women. <laughs> I read a book. You read a book. A good book. What did you read? I read The Crystal Shard by R.A. Salvatore. <laughs> Oh, that's what you think a good book is. Uh, and it also put a bullet into us reading X-Wing for War and Our Stars. Because uh, I started listening to the audiobook at work and it just completely blew Stackpole out of the water. You can't be getting outclassed by R.A. Salvatore. That's a bad way to be in life. <laughs> Salvatore has four characters, four main characters in this book. They are Drizzto Erden, you know, mm-hmm. who people have probably are vaguely familiar with, at least. Rogue extraordinaire. No. Is he not a rogue? No. What is he? He's a ranger. Oh. He dual wields and has a big, a big cat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. He's a drow ranger. Drow are the evil elves with dark skin who live underground. Um, he has uh, Brunor, Brunor Battleaxe, who's a, a dwarf who uh, is is always quick to criticize, but is always very honest about that critici- criticism, and is is embarrassed when he has to show emotions or compliment people. There's Caddy Bree, who's I guess. That's not really a main character yet. She'll be important later. She's mostly girl in this one. Mm-hmm. She's Brunor's adopted daughter. There's Wolfgar the Barbarian King. He's a young barbarian who uh, ascends to be a king of his people for like two weeks so that he can lead them into battle at the end. Um, and then there's the halfling whose name i just cannot remember he's he he hates working hard at things me too he loves having money me too he loves um being important me too and he loves uh eating nice food yeah me the fuck too so he's hanging out he's got a pendant that lets him hypnotize people uh and he has a sharp tongue or mm-hmm. not a sharp tongue, a silver tongue. The other one. Um, but he's also a little bit, like a little bit of a coward. Um, and anyway, they deal with an evil wizard who mm-hmm. is a, a wizard apprentice who's very bad at casting spells and can't really cast many spells. But he finds an ancient artifact that called the Crystal Shard. And he um, becomes super powerful Raises some towers and starts gathering goblin and orc and troll and ogre hordes to conquer the ten towns of Icewind Dale. And then the heroes stop him. And it's just really, really fun. It's just a nice, fun adventure. Drizzt is cool. Uh, 
Is Drist cool? He's cool sometimes. Okay. okay. I wasn't actually sure, like... I know he's supposed to be cool. I didn't know if it actually, like, came through when reading that he's actually cool. I didn't know if, like, Drizzt was, like, low-key kind of lame. No, Loki's a different guy. Drizzt, um, usually, like, for the first half of the book, he is very calm and confident and gentle. And he, like, he has his, his like, knowing little, um, um... Like interactions with Brunor, where like, yeah, we'll someday we'll we'll find your ancestral dwarven home uh, someday when the time is right. We'll go on that quest, and like understands the people around him and the world around him really well, and navigates that. Considering that one in Icewind Dale, the environment is extremely dangerous, and two, being a drow on the surface world where all of their other drow are known to be evil sadists and, um, like, evil people (laughs) and cruel. Um, People don't like him or interact with him. And so he's, like, navigating these two different dangerous spaces with a lot of, like, sort of calm gentleness and, like, bearing the, the burdens of those, but never, like lashing out at anybody or like reacting like that to people and then once he starts fighting and once he starts getting into like action scenes and stuff this other side starts to come out which is because he has like two modes that he operates in because he may be a ranger but he does have one level of barbarian so he does have like a battle mode like a rage um which i think in later books gets a a name like i think that's the hunter like that's like a different Mm -hmm. mode that he 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 switches to in certain situations and that that version of drow is much more like oh i love fighting and killing uh isn't it so much fun to like just conquer uh these these goblins and orcs and stuff like not like cruelly but like action hero like oh you don't start without me like i'm gonna fight and kill these monsters too Mm -hmm. Um, it's fun it's a fun book i liked it a lot it it does sound genuinely fun i i'm sorry for being quite as dismissive (laughs) as i was like i no no you're valid. I think <laughs> I think that Drizzt warrants just a little bit of dunking. There's like 30 books. Yeah. So I assume, like, there is some really funny stuff where, like, a guy looks Drizzt in the eye and, and is like, and he knew in that moment he was richer than any king. Rich in principle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do we want to use that as a segue to talk about Helantris? God, sure. that is Raiden's whole character is <laughs> rich in principle. <laughs> I uh, should have done this earlier. I'm pulling up uh, Elantrix. Summary Elantris. Uh, what chapters did we read this time? 21? We started 20. with 22. 22. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I guess I read these summaries. So this one or is. I read this summary. Yeah. I mean. This is some shit. 
Go on. This is some shit. <laughs> Take us on a journey. Rayden grows concerned about an escalating amount of attacks launched by Shayor's gang and decides to, front mm. to confront the gang leader with Galadon accompanying him. Galadon deduces that Shayor's base is located inside a bank which has the ideal security and defensibility. They are surprised to learn that Shayor is a young girl and are forced to flee when Shayor orders her followers to attack them before they could parlay with her. Rayden notes that Shayor's followers, who is really the... Oh, oh, this is a weirdly constructed sentence, sorry. Rayden notes that Shayor's followers, Shayor really being the daughter of Duke Tellery, seem to worship Shayor as a, as a god. Um, Rayden and Galadon return to their base, now called New Elantris. <laughs> I missed that little <laughs> detail. Uh, which is somewhat fortified with makeshift barriers and sentries. Rayden is surprised at how the marble easily crumbles at a touch and speculates that the absence of door could be causing everything to decay, comparing the city to an empty shell that has been shed by a river crawler that has outgrown it. Uh, Marishi reports that visitors from Kai have uh, have entered Elantris and Raiden goes to investigate. Serini and a number of Kai's nobles enter Elantris, bringing a wagon of food to distribute to the hungry. Raiden fears that the food will interfere with Raiden's plans to make the Elantrians self-sufficient and also possibly provoke a feeding frenzy by Shayor's undisciplined followers, which could lead to extreme countermeasures on Ian Eandon's part. Serini demands to speak with Eandon, Karada, and Shayor. Raiden plans to parlay with Serini. Um... So this is the first chapter where, like, Raiden and Serini will really be, like, speaking to each other. So, like, Maybe the best way to approach this is by talking about the Shayor stuff and then doing, ta reading the Serini summary and like talking about the rest of Raid and stuff here and Serini stuff together. Maybe that doesn't. Yeah, they don't actually. Chapter, I mean, she yeah, she saying, shows up in like the last uh, page oh, or whatever, yeah. like the last little section. Right, and then okay, and then the switch yeah. in POV happens. There's... The switch in POV is in the yeah. Raid didn't bite yeah. some of yes. Serini's chapter. Is what but happens then... this time. Yes, Raiden yeah. does take a little bit of um, ruin the form, Brandon. Come on, you got it going for. Raiden is just chapters. so cool. So, we just had to hear more from him. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into how dumb Raiden's chapter is, I, I guess I will say that like one of the hallmarks of Brandon's style to me that I know he absolutely just took from Wheel of Time, like, just 100% lifted this thing, is, like, playing around with point of view in an interesting way. And, like, Raiden quickly realizes in this chapter that Serini is his wife, and then we switch to Serini's point of view... So that, like, he can have that information, but Serini doesn't. And we can experience Serini's POV as she has less information. I think that's one of, like, the hallmarks of Brandon's style is, like, playing around with information in that sort of way. And it took us 22 <laughs> chapters to get to it in this book. <laughs> so you're saying that one of Brandon's hallmarks is the use of dramatic irony? <laughs> yes! I mean, I think... <laughs> yes! But in, I, like, I think that's like a valid yeah. thing to point out. It, I totally have seen this in other books of his, and I think it's I think it can be really fun. Um, you know, uh, especially in like a, 
I, I think, you know, it, it creates a fun tension here because they already know each other. Um, so it's not just like, mm-hmm. uh, it's not purely like, oh, there's an information asymmetry and that's all there is. It, it like, it has something to do with like a character relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But before we really get to that, we should probably talk about the stuff with Shayor, which is <sighs> yeah. dumb. They seem to have constructed. Oh my a god! <laughs> yeah, so Raiden literally says that, and Raiden refers to them as primitive, and then like also when he's talking about like one of his concerns is that the people of Kai are going to see that their their society is too civilized. So like th- like the the society of quote unquote new Elantris is too civilized. And so, like, lots of stuff happening in this chapter around, like, what is civilized and what is not. And it's all just, like, assuming that the reader is, like, totally on board with, like, these definitions of, like, civilized and What I think is hilarious (laughs) is, okay, so there's this actual bit where uh, Rayadin calls Shaor's followers primitive. He says... They've regressed to a more primitive way of mm-hmm. life and have adopted a primitive religion as well. And Galadon calls him out on that. Uh, is like, oh, many people called <laughs> Jesker a primitive religion. And Rayadin's response is, all right, perhaps I should have said simplistic. And that's not fucking better. Um, <laughs> and it also comes after, like, the whole first section of the chapter where they're, like, going into, uh, you know, Sheor's base they're thinking they're like talking with each other the whole time about how fucking like feral and bestial <laughs> Shaor's men are and how like they've become so like yes. consumed with violence that they don't feel the pain anymore and it, like they're basically like fucking berserkers i guess <laughs> he he literally says i think that they're reverting to their bestial state as if like once again sanity is a stat and once you have hit a certain threshold on sanity, not only do you become, like, hoeed, where you're, like, moaning in pain, but actually the other thing you can do is revert to your primal <laughs> form, your, like, animal instincts, and just, like... Oh, it's I think so it's... dumb. <laughs> but also, also, these people who are essentially, in the eyes of, like, Raiden, no more than beasts are also forming a religion. Yeah, I... <laughs> you know? I think so, it's like, really... Uh, like, I don't think the book thinks this way because it it is, like, the the all this, like, primitive, bestial, all that shit is, like, in the narration. And you could say it's Raiden's point of view, but I honestly think that's how the book thinks about these people. However, to me, it seems obvious that yeah. they're just having the exact same experience as Raiden's followers. They believe in something, and that helps them deal with their pain and makes them more able to do other shit. It's just that the shit that they want to do, that their king is asking them to do, is, like, violence instead of cleaning shit off the walls. Yeah, they they (laughs) took the sicko mode skill tree instead of the janitor skill tree. (laughs) Well, and I could absolutely see a version of this book, which I think is, like, Maybe, maybe does kind of like hint that this is just Raiden's point of view. That like maybe six chapters from now we're gonna get that flipped, 
and we're gonna like actually speak to one of these characters and realize that there's like not there's not so much difference between Raiden's group and Shaor's group. I could absolutely believe a version of that book, but I don't think that's the book that we're reading. I just don't think Eorthus yeah. is that clever. <laughs> I don't think Shayor will be important yeah, in 10 it, chapters. Especially yeah. especially Absolutely. because there's this emphasis that Shayor is, uh, not just that she's a little girl, but that she's like a stupid, spoiled brat, um, which is like, uh, it's so gross. Yes. Like, she's a she's a hungry, suffering child, like every other child in Elantris. Um, she just uh, doesn't yeah. get sympathy because, like, like I, I, you know, I get it. Like, she's the leader of a, a terrifying gang that are Raiden's enemies. So, of course, he's not going to immediately sympathize with her, except that, like, Raiden's whole shtick this entire time has been, like, looking at these Elantrians who seem to be really scary and going, like, hmm, you know, I think they're still human. I think I can, like, talk to them and, like, help them. Uh, but once mm-hmm. he realizes that Shaor is a little girl, it's like, well, no way I can possibly talk to her. <laughs> Well, and, um, like, he, part of the reason that he doesn't want to, like, see her as a person is, one, that he sees her as a stupid little girl, and two, he he recognizes her as Duke Tellery's daughter, and like, oh, she grew up in luxury, and that's why she's behaving this way. Raiden also has lived in luxury for 10 years he calls her he says he says on the outside she was the most spoiled insufferable child i'd ever met i bet people who met raiden found him to be pretty spoiled and insufferable (laughs) yeah you're the king's son everybody who meets you's predisposition is gonna be like i bet this guy Uh, except that sadly (laughs) you know yeah we know that's not the case everyone loved him (laughs) We yeah we we know, know that everyone loves him and in fact the opposite is true because they think that about Eodon and they deal with Eodon being a spoiled piece of shit because Raiden is so cool yeah and it's just it's so it's another thing that in a in a better book I could absolutely see like Raiden wants to dismiss her for being you know spoiled and noble and privileged. And then, like, a few chapters from now, it's flipped on its head as, like, somebody points out, you're also a rich person on the outside. But he has the but, soul yeah. of, of, like, a noble peasant. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because this is another chapter where we're just like, oh my gosh, Raiden, he just couldn't do anything wrong ever. Like, <sighs> he's kind of venting at the start of this chapter about how um, Saelin's guards, like, pamper him too much. And Galadon's like... You're just irreplaceable, irreplaceable, and everybody just loves you so much. He says that if people protect what they find valuable, so maybe you shouldn't have set yourself up to be irreplaceable. Right, and like, everybody just loves Raiden too much for his own good. Um, God. (laughs) Can I bring up a detail about Shear that isn't mentioned in this summary, but that I think is fucking hilarious? So the reason Please do. that, or at least the way that uh, the way that Raiden interprets what he sees oh, yeah. is that the reason people are worshiping her is because she has long golden hair, which is to say, 
it seems that her hair has not like fallen out the way that yep. every other Elantrians has. And so they see her as defined because of that. And he happens to know, because he knew her outside, that she is naturally bald and she's wearing a wig. <sighs> That's like, okay, wearing a wig requires a certain amount of like maintenance, you know? Um, you can't just, like, slap a wig on your head, yeah. especially if you're, I mean, okay, she's a child who's probably been wearing wigs all her life, so I guess she's probably pretty good at, like, keeping it on and stuff. But, like, her followers have to be, like, brushing her hair and, like, washing it. Like, they must be washing it for it not to be covered in shit like everything in Elantris. There's no way, there's no way <laughs> that none of them have ever, like, accidentally moved it a little on her head or something like that. Or, like, or that she, as, like, a kid who doesn't actually seem to be very canny, that she's managed to, like, keep this secret. It's just bullshit. Like, uh. Well, and... It, at first blush, the thing that it felt like to me was a, like... A metaphor about how, like... That's just fake external beauty, and she's not, like, you know, beautiful on the inside, like Rayan is, you know? Um, but, like, that's a really dumb thing to get mad at, like, a 12-year-old yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think there's a certain vibe of, like, thinking that it's somehow a bad thing that she was wearing a wig even before she came here, when it's like, oh my god, like, she's got a fucking medical condition, you know? Like, a child who doesn't have any hair... I I yeah. don't know if it's, like, uh, there's probably multiple... I, I know alopecia is, is one name for... There's probably other conditions that can cause that. But, like, again, that's just not... Uh, people wear wigs in the real world, Brandon. Well, and, like... And it's said that, like, Duke Tellery got her a wig. And so, like, she's pretty young. Her father was probably, like, she's probably experiencing some sort of, like, you know, emotional turbulence because she doesn't have any hair. Let me do something nice for her. Let me get her a wig. That's like a good dad thing. Like, that's like the bare minimum of what I think you should do if your daughter is like experiencing some discomfort with her hair. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and Raiden is like, ah, oh, I can't believe this child is wearing a wig just because she doesn't have hair. Like, shut up, Raiden. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, this is like the first very slightly humanizing thing we've learned about Duke Tellery, that he has a daughter and that he took some kind of care of her. Yeah. Um, well, and also, like, you know, I hadn't thought about this, but, like, um, in in the Hraithan chapter, we'll get a conversation with Duke Tellery, and, like, he's, like, really, like, bent on getting the throne, as we know, and it's really interesting to know, like, oh, probably him having a daughter who is an Elantrian is going to, like, tie into his motivation in some way. Like, we don't, I don't totally know how, like, those pieces are going to fall into place, but, like, it's interesting to get this information and then to go back and remind us that he's, like, a player in the story and, like, probably, probably du Duke Tellery has something in mind for Elantris if he gets the throne because his daughter's there, Yeah, I mean, it, it is... It is interesting, so. I mean, you know, he's allying with this whole plan of, like, demonize the Elantrians. Um, I do wonder if, uh, because it seems pretty easy to predict that 
um, you know, the direction of this whole demonize the Elantrians plan was probably eventually going to involve some kind of violence against them. I mean, literally, they already, like, burned an Elantrian. Right. <laughs> so, like, uh, it, it's not a big step from there yeah. to, like, organized, you know, mob violence of some kind. Um, so you do have to wonder, like, does Tellery, does he just not anticipate that? Does he not care if it happens to his daughter? Like, does he feel like she's already dead? Does he... Yeah. Like... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's well, interesting. <laughs> it's a it's a good little wrinkle yeah, for his character. I think it'll I think. be good to find out. I do think it's most likely because he's you know so evil that he's going to be like, yeah, I wanted to see my daughter murdered. I think she's a <laughs> disgusting thing now. But you know, it well, probably is that. Remember, he's also <laughs> ugly, so he might be evil. Oh, can't forget that. Yeah, he's got a birthmark. He does have that. Is he is he also fat? No. Or this this book is not quite so bent on fat people being being bad as like Well, there's Ahan. Yeah. It, it has that, but it's not ter- like the worst mm-hmm. book about it. It's definitely here in the book, but um anyway, the other like scene in this chapter is read and thinking about how giving the Elantrians food would yeah. be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, so walk me through this because I I I listened to it twice so, and could not quite follow his logic here because it won't last forever and then the crash afterward will be even worse than yep. not okay. having it. We may as well. I think we should all. read. Okay. You know the the stuff that he actually says. Um, the timing is wrong, Galadon. Rayadin explained. Our people are just starting to get a sense of independence. They're beginning to focus on the future and forget their pain. If someone hands them food now, they'll forget everything else. For a short time, they'll be fed. But widows' trials only last a few weeks. After that, it will be back to the pain, the hunger, and the self pity. My princess out there could destroy everything we've been working for. Um, and then he also suggests what happens when Shaor hears about this, his, her men, sorry, forgot he knows Shaor is a girl now. Her men will attack that cart like a pack of wolves. There's no telling what kind of damage it would do if one of them killed a count or a baron. Um, so he suggests that, you know, if that happens, maybe his father will wipe out Elantris if the, if the uh, nobles are actually in danger. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, again, not what the book is doing, but but with a just sort of very basic, like, cynical look, or, or not cynical, like, a very basically skeptical look here. I think it's pretty obvious that Raiden is upset because someone is threatening his power, right? Like, someone is showing yeah. up and doing something that will help his people, but that he doesn't have control over, you know? Like, I bet if someone showed up and was like, Rayadin, I'm gonna give you a truckload of food, and it's up to you to distribute it, he would be like, oh, great, this is perfect for my plans. (laughs) Right, yeah, exactly. Um, And, like... Well, I I have a thought spinning out from that, but I'll save it for the Serini chapter, because I think it ties in a little better there. But... Yeah, like, Raiden's just an asshole, but, like, says it in, like, this sort of, like, language of, like, how noble kings might, like, describe being an asshole so that it sounds better. 
Yeah. I don't know. I honestly <laughs> think, um, like, there's also a lot of assumptions that he makes about how this is happening that I think are, like, the thing where he's like, oh, this is only going to last a few weeks. Um, I don't know why he jumps to that conclusion. Like, he immediately get assumes it's a widow's trial, which it, it is, but, like, how does he know that? Um, and... I'm not saying that he should have immediately assumed, oh, she's going to keep this up long term, but, like, he definitely could have thought about, like, oh, how can I negotiate with her? Maybe we can make this a long-term thing. Like, mm-hmm. which is kind of what happens, although he's not the one who negotiates for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like... Yeah, there's also, like... He is immediately... What, when Serini wants to speak to Aandin and Karata and Shaor, um, he is immediately like, oh, thank God, I can, like, have this sort of secret. Like, I can secretly still be the guy in charge, but, like, have this outsider think that it's someone else. I can use this to my advantage in some way, which is fun. I, I, I like when protagonists in books keep secrets from other protagonists in yeah. books. It's just fun. Although I do kind of... <laughs> Like, I, I have to admit, and, and maybe we can talk about this more as we get into the Sereni chapter, where we actually see, you know, their little uh, performance and, and negotiation and stuff. I don't actually understand why he wants to hide the fact that he's a leader in Elantris. Oh, actually, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, well, he says is that we can't let them know that we're being, like, organized as a society because that becomes way scarier to Eodon than just a pit full of groaning like beasts like if people if if Eodon starts to see that Elantrians have a culture and have like a presence then that becomes something he has to like deal with and like know about and think about rather than just like a thing he can write off Remind me, I'm sure, I know we know this, uh, Eodon knows that Raiden's here, right? Yeah. It's not like he's clandestinely taken and even Eodon doesn't really know. No, Eodon's the one who sent him. Okay, okay. Just wanted to double check because it's been a little bit since we talked about the first chapter. I think, why don't we move into the next chapter just because um, the thing Nora was just talking about is in the next chapter. Um, And I think think it's worth getting to that stuff. I think so too. So, chapter 23. Serini, accompanied by Aandel, Shuden, and a squad of city guards, are led by Rayadin, who names himself as Spirit, to meet with who she thinks are the tyrants of Elantris. Karada and Marishi, posing as Aandin, state they have an alliance and have killed Sheor, and now control Elantris. Um, and it's been a while, so I just want to remind people that Aandin used to be one of the gang leaders, and then Rayadin, uh did a really good speech check on him and convinced him to convince him to go back to being Tayan the sculptor. Um, I don't, I don't really understand why they right. didn't get that guy to pose as Andin since like he was doing a perfectly good job RPing Andin for a long time before Raiden got here, but whatever. No, it's the mask is gone now. He can't, he can't be that anymore. He's too obsessed with all the beautiful I mean, sculptures. I I think that's what we're meant to think. Yes, I just think that's stupid. Um. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
Serini parlays with them to be allowed to distribute food to the Elantrians without interference from them, and they give a list of demands, including cloth, grains, oil, and raw building materials, and both parties agree to each other's demands. Rayadin tells Galadon that they should keep their budding society a secret so that new fears of an Elantrian threat don't arise in Kai. Rayadin decides to keep an eye on Serini, since he suspects that she has other motives besides charity for entering Elantris. Serini discusses how brutal Elantris is, based on information from Ash, though they see little sign of uncivilized behavior during, during the parlay <laughs> or afterwards. Serini and the nobles unload food from wagons, assisted by Spirit. A crowd of Elantrians <clears throat> approaches, but does not take any food until Spirit demonstrates that it is safe for them to do so. Serini intuits that Spirit is really one of the leaders, and is curious why he conceals this fact. Serini tells Ash about her suspicions regarding Spirit, and tells her Sion to spy on him, since their intelligence may be out of date, and to also inquire about the alleged treaty between Aendin and Karada. Serini ponders the discrepancies between what Ash witnessed and what she saw, and about whether Spirit's apparent concern for the welfare of the Elantrians was genuine, and why he seemed concerned with Serini's opinion of him. Serini also grows preoccupied with thoughts of Spirit, and almost grows to like him. I'll just, like, um, the last word of your summary, and then it'll just be like, oh, we lost our internet for a sec, but we're back. <laughs> yeah. So. Do you want to reintro us, Nora? No. Okay. What do you mean? Just like, oh, we lost our internet for a second, but we're back. Oh, uh, we lost our internet for a second, <laughs> but we're back. <laughs> See, now you have to keep the context. Yeah, now I have to keep the context. <laughs> <clears throat> um so Serini. Yeah. Um Where do we want to start with this chapter? <laughs> well, I don't think it would be unreasonable to start with the the Raiden perspective stuff since we were already kind of talking about that. Right, exactly, mm -hmm. yeah. Um So like it was really funny that Raiden won has he used the spirit nickname before now? Because I yeah, oh, no, that's, no, no, no. the whole book. Okay, that's okay. what I was. I spirit is what all everyone else in Elantris thinks he's. Like, that's what he's calling himself to everyone else in Elantris. Um, that's what I thought, and then this. That's what I had thought, and then the way the summary worded it like threw me off for a second. I was like, <clears> what? <throat> because I I did just realize I don't know. I don't have a good grasp on, like, how phonetic, like, the Aeons are, but he does walk up to Serini and basically say, hi, I'm Rayo, <laughs> you know, yeah, and I, Serini doesn't think about, I had a husband named Rayadin. <laughs> I, think, I think that the language they are actually speaking, um, which would be, fuck, what is their language called? Uh, do we know that? Aeonic. No, Aeonic. no, they're not speaking... They can't oh, be speaking right, Aeonic, right. because if they were speaking Aeonic, then the word spirit would be Rayo. I'm pretty sure, like, I'm pretty sure that uh, Aeons and, like, what Aeons mean is different from, like, it's kind of like, I, I suspect, uh, I, I suspect, suspect Brandon was thinking about, um, you know, the thing where, like, in, say, Japanese, like, a character can have a meaning but it also has a, a pronunciation, right? And then you can have a word yeah. that's composed of characters, and the 
the word doesn't mean the meaning of its individual characters. They're just okay. sounds. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess it is possible, actually, that, yeah, because obviously they are, it's all being quote-unquote translated into English. So yeah, he may have just rolled up to her and said, I'm Rayo. Um. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it's, it is kind of funny that, um, Raiden decides for whatever his reasons are, I'm going to conceal my identity both as, both as her husband and as the leader of the Elantrians. Um, I'm going to conceal my identity, but then is so incredibly obvious about being the leader. <laughs> Yeah. Serini figures it out in two seconds. I don't understand. Like, okay, there's this justification that he gives for why he wants to hide the, you know, the degree of organization that his people have achieved, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is kind of stupid as an argument because um, it, to me, kind of contradicts. Like, if his concern is, oh, I don't want them to think that we're organized because they'll fear us more. Uh, it's like, okay, what about the thing where he didn't, he was really, really worried about Shaor's men, like, attacking the nobles, and he thought that would lead Iodon to wipe them out as well, like. So you have to have, like, the, just the right levels of organized, but not too organized that you're, like, threatening, but not so unorganized that you're threatening, you know? Yeah, and and then, like, yeah, the further thing is, like, I don't actually see how the way that Karada and Marishi present themselves is not presenting, like, an organized society, because they are leaders, you know? Like, they've got people who obey them, and they've got, especially with, like, their list of demands, it's very obvious that they have plans to, like, build shit, right? And, uh, so, (laughs) um, so as far as the whole, like, concealing that we're actually trying to build a functioning society thing here, I think he completely failed, um... But I also don't see why concealing his identity is actually useful for that. Because, again, Karada and Marishi appear as leaders. So, like, I think he honestly just thinks that he himself personally is so obviously a great leader that if he revealed himself, (laughs) if he, like, was actually saying, yes, I'm the guy in charge of this, then that would instantly make Iodan go, like, oh, shit, they're rising up. Gotta kill them all. Um, But Karada... (laughs) And, I mean, you know, Marishi is also... There's all these jokes about how Marishi doesn't act very uh, impressive as a leader. But nonetheless, he's still presenting himself as someone whom people listen to. I don't know, like... I don't know what he thinks it is about Karada that isn't gonna worry Iodon in the exact same way. Um, Unless it's just that she's a girl. Right, and, like... Like, th- what is the difference between we have all organized under this one leader and these two leaders organize themselves against a third? Like, there's no difference between that from an outsider's point of view, unless, when, like you say, like, Raiden is just so cool that, like, he would instantly be a threat to Iodon's throne. <laughs> I kind well, of think... Oh, sorry, go on. Raiden has always been a threat to Iodon's throne. Yeah, that... Okay, that's... That's true, but that is also dependent on other people recognizing him as Raiden. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't I, know. I get why he's calling himself Spirit to her and to everyone in general. Like, I, I think I've accepted this idea that he doesn't want people to know he's Raiden. Um, I mean, I don't actually remember what his rationale was for concealing that identity within Elantris. 
I think concealing it from Serini makes a ton of sense. Um, cause like that would open up a huge kettle of worms. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hi, I'm your husband. I live here. I do think so. The king lied about me being dead. Like, mm-hmm. I do think that if Eodon found out that Rayadin is, uh, you know, doing some kind of leadership thing in Elantris, then he might very well, like, invade and try to depose him because Eodon has always been very, like, has always had this sense that Raiden was a threat to his throne. Um, but, uh, yeah, I wonder if the distinction that Raiden is trying to make here between the type of rule that Karada and Marishi are play-acting at and the actual type of rule that he is doing is, like, uh, there's this constant repetition in the the scene between Karada and Marishi and Serini of the idea that they are tyrants or, like, basically gang leaders. Um, and Serini uh, basically thinks that they... Serini immediately assumes that they do not want her to bring food to their people um, and that she's going to have to negotiate for that right. Um, Mm -hmm. And even when the things they negotiate for are like basic needs that you would use to build a society, uh, her conclusion on this is the message was clear rule of Elantris depended not on force or wealth, but on controlling basic necessities. So she immediately assumes that, you know, that they're going to use... That they want these things to, like, leverage against the people to maintain power and not, like, to help the people in any way. Yes, and and um, I think that's a really fine distinction because Raiden is going to use all those things to maintain his power. Um, and, uh, yeah. and I also don't really, on some level, see a huge distinction between, like... I'm going to control the flow of resources because I'm a shitty tyrant and I want to be on top. And I'm going to control the flow of resources because I believe that is the best way to get this stuff out to everyone and build a functioning society. Like, the only functional difference between those things, as we see them contrasted in this chapter, is how nice the person at the head of it is. Yeah, yeah, and like... And Raiden is so nice. He's so gentle. <laughs> he's so unbarbaric. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. He's got those dreamy eyes, that mottled skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she definitely kind of thinks he's, like, hot for an Elantrian, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she really does. I mean, the chapter ends with, for some reason, he seemed particularly concerned with Serena's opinion of him. Walking out of the entryway toward her own room, Serena had to try very hard before she convinced herself that she didn't care what he thought about her. This is also just interesting because, like, this, this is a little bit, like, I'm a little bit, like, rolling my eyes that, like, these two immediately have this connection even though she doesn't recognize him like i or or or, no that's not what i was rolling my eyes at i was rolling my eyes that rayadin is so cool that he also instantly charms the princess um the moment she sees him despite being a weird 
ghoul, despite being a weird ghoul. But the thing that I'll say in the book's favor on that point is they were dating for months before, like, this happened. Yeah. They were on Skype four hours every night. If that was the relationship that you and I had for a while, and if I saw you at the grocery store and didn't immediately recognize you somehow, I would still be like, Oh, that guy, that person reminds me of Nora. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. This makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I don't, don't mind. I don't mind them having this like instant connection. Um, I, I definitely think that like, you know, he's he's acting like Rayadin, and Serini liked Rayadin. You know, so I think it makes sense that even though she doesn't recognize his face, she's immediately like, "Damn, I I like this dude," <laughs> um, or like, "I'm interested yeah. in this dude." This guy's my type, and my type is guys who act like Rayadin and talk like Rayadin. <laughs> oh, <they're... laughs> something else to note here that's really awkward, and I wish I could find a specific line where it happens. Um, so as Serini is handing out the um. As Serini is handing out the boxes of food, um, in a very charming sort of way, Rayadin, like, joins the line of people who are, like, taking boxes of food from her and, like, handing them out and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And Serini, um, nearing the final few boxes, she happened to look up at the man accepting the load. She nearly dropped, (laughs) she nearly dropped the box in shock as she recognized his face you, the Elantria known as Spirit, smiled. Um, blah, 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 blah. Zerini stood in muted stupefaction. She must have mistaken his, meaning Raiden's, dark hands for Shudin's brown ones. There's a couple times in this chapter that they refer to the Elantrians as dark-skinned. And contrasting dark skin with brown skin, it was just really awkward, like, I don't think, like, I I just don't think you would put that in a novel anymore. (laughs) I don't think you would describe characters as dark-skinned a few times, and then have to, like, rewind a little bit by putting a brown-skinned character in to make sure that everybody knew that dark skin meant gray and not... (laughs) Oh, uh, it's just awkward and weird, and it's not just—it's just not how you would say this at all. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Um, like it's just bad. The, like the way that the Elantrian condition is actually defined, I think it's a little better than I don't know something like Drow, where it's not literally that they are just darker than everyone else or darker than they were in life. It's that they have this like weird like gray and white mottled pattern on them Mm -hmm. but then the book goes on to refer to them as dark all the time and it's like well you uh you fucked that up like you came up with a distinctive skin thing that doesn't obviously sound like you were being really racist and then the way you talked about it sounds really racist so like you ruined your no press (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's just yeah, it's an unforced error in a big way. <laughs> yeah. Um. 
I feel like maybe there's another thing I wanted to hit on this chapter, but I can't think of it. Do you? Do you? Is it about Ash? Oh yeah, Ash. Uh, like Ash had some like interesting stuff in this chapter where like, um, it's noted that like somebody like kind of pushes Ash out of the way or like walks through him or something, and um, Sereni notes. That Sion's are not give this given the same deference that like human servants would. Like you wouldn't just shove a person out of the way that you sh- the way that you shove a Sion out of the way. But also Ash doesn't really care about that, and it was just like, I yeah, it's the Ash's personhood watch. Like what <laughs> what's going on with this? Where like it's specifically noted that people wouldn't be bothered by this. Or that people would be bothered by this, but Ash isn't. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I lost my train of thought, but yeah. It's definitely, like, just another one of these weird things where, like, yeah, Sion's are treated as, as less than human. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, that's always, that's always creepy whenever it comes up. Um, I also think it's, like interesting and weird that ash's information is so out of date um like ash is the one who told sereni okay the three gang leaders are karada andan and shayor um and uh you know uh it turns out ash is getting most of that information from the guards but is speaking to elantrians and so it's like yes i don't know i mean you would think that the rumors of the dude named Spirit who now controls like two thirds of Elantris and is making all these move like making all these huge moves, you really would have thought that Ash would have heard of that. Um Yeah. Even even though like they, they do say they he does say, Ash says, um, the Elantrians were hesitant to give anything more than names. So that's why he's mostly focusing on the guards, which I think is a bad move on his part because the guards don't actually I think know that much um but like but even so even just giving the names like Karada and Aandin both work for spirit now I you'd think uh rumor would spread about that really fast in Elantris um I guess is what I'm saying maybe Ash only went to talk to Shaor's people <laughs> you can't talk to Shaor's people <laughs> Maybe that's why all they had was names. <laughs> yeah. I also think it's interesting that, like, hey, there's a Sion running around asking questions that that hasn't reached Raiden's ears. Yeah, um, or Raiden heard and just didn't think it was remarkable in any way, shape, or form. Because mm, like, Sions don't either, count. Yeah. <laughs> like, either explanation is like, huh, weird. I, I assume that... It, at some point, Ash will meet the other Sion and put it together, and that's how Serini will find out that he's Raiden. Oh, oh you mean Raiden's really like? If they're, you, what's that, Ian? The, I think the, so. It's yeah. like that's Raiden's like, uh, like undead Sion. Yeah. Because uh, if Raiden can recognize it, I'm sure Ash can recognize it. Yeah, that's probably true. You want to hear about? Are hot, hot Hraithen. <laughs> the first three words of this chapter are, Hraithen was hot. 
I mean, if 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 Short that's your type, <laughs> <laughs> as uh, his as his cool bulky red armor was <laughs> like, if you I, like, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just about to say that if you like like a beefy dude who is always thinking about how much he loves hierarchies, then like Hraithan is that. Uh, that's he's he's doing that. Or, or maybe you're like, I really want a guy who's kind of lost and needs guidance. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, if you want to help still him, good in him, yeah, uh. <laughs> there's still Ooh. order in him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you thinking about this as like, oh, I'm like a, a you know, a, a, a good um, fjordal maiden, and I'm gonna bring him back to the light? Or are you thinking about this as like, oh, I can seduce him away from his evil religion, or both of those? Appealing. Either. Dep- your choice, depending on what uh, <laughs> angle you want to play it. But, you know, it writes itself. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to deal back over to the summary that Autumn took me away from. I had to type, they're still good in him, so I would remember to name the episode that. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 24. Hraithan watches from atop the city wall, along with a large crowd who are expecting violence as Serene distributes food to the Elantrians. Viewers grow bored and disperse as the Elantrians placidly accept the, feud- the food offerings. Hraithan departs as well and encounters Tellery on his way back to the chapel. Tellery berates Hraithan for not stopping Sereni and bemoans that Iodon has obtained the new trade contra- contracts <coughs> in Teod. But Hraithan counters that Sereni's efforts won't amount to much and that Tellery will be able to bring more wealth to Arlon through a, through a trade treaty with the East if he is on the throne, and Tellery is mollified. <coughs> Hraithan feels confident that Serini's efforts to foil his plans are focused in the wrong direction. Tellery claims that he won't be a pawn of the Fjordel Empire. Back at his chapel, Hraithan overhears comments by Diloph that cause him to suspect that Diloph is older than he appears, and more seasoned than he lets on. He grows increasingly concerned over how much influence Diloph actually has currently. He also ponders his faltering faith as Omen had, and questions his true purpose in Kai, above and beyond his obedience to Wern. So this is maybe my favorite chapter we've covered so far, because it's mostly Hraithan sitting around being like, man, Aww. I'm in a really fucked up situation. I'm in a, oh man, it's hard being, it's hard being a leader. Oh, <laughs> oh so you like it, you like it when it's hard for Hraithan to be a leader, but not when it's hard for Raiden. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Raiden doesn't have somebody... Stealing all of the authority out from under him. Oh, I wish Galadon would do that. That would be awesome. <laughs> oh, um, if only Galadon was like going around and like making all of Raiden's favorite people swear fealty to him in secret. That would be sick. Oh. <laughs> How do you? Okay. I think this twist about Diloph being older than he appears is. A little unbelievable. It's dumb. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. I I as I was reading, I was like, "What is?" Ha- it feels like Brandon retconning the book as he's writing it, like retconning <laughs> things out from under himself. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was like utter be- utterly bewildered by this by this turn that Diloph's like secretly been 50 the whole time or something. I think what's weirdest these... about it is it's 
it's not like Diloph's age was in any way clearly established before this. So it's not like we all had yeah. in mind, okay, Diloph is in his 20s. That means he can't have had much influence over uh, the Dorethi community here for very long. And now it's like, oh shit, backwards. That That's backwards. Like, we never thought that in the first place. So we can't really be surprised by the reveal that it's not true. Yeah, there's a little bit of setup that Diloph is like leading a pretty small church but not that like it's small because he's young and inexperienced but but rather because like there's just not that many people here like there's spiritual hipsters too yeah i never (laughs) never once i always had assumed that diloph was a bit younger than horathan but but not by much like i'd always i guess i'd always put him at like 30 to 35 i don't know like i i no no no, that's not it i hadn't thought about diloph's age even once for even a second and so when the twist is that actually he's older than we all thought i was like did we think anything never did i reach any conclusions about that it was not in my mind and like i i think the actual like the substance of it is kind of interesting where it's like oh diloph has a lot more influence then it appears like he's not just like kind of a a wild-eyed convert he's actually like kind of a a long-standing canny political operator within this church um but like uh it doesn't feel it feels a little bit redundant with what happened in the last Wraithan chapter where it was like oh shit Diloph is swearing all these odives to him where like yeah we we know at this point that Diloph is not just like a a wild man we know that he's got chops and and power and influence at this point um so like it feels like Krathen is very slowly wising up to the fact that Diloph is like more important than him here (laughs) (laughs) well yeah it's two chapters in a row of of Krathen being like ah shit I might have been outplayed (laughs) I feel Um, like the reason that this is like this both are hitting right now is because Next week, next episode, we're going to cover the last three chapters of Act One. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are um, you thinking Diloph's going to make his move? I think something's going to happen. That that would make sense. Yeah, I think something's going to like <clears throat> come to a head in the next like Hraithan chapter to like cause some kind of shift. Something a thing will happen in this book. <laughs> <laughs> Can I? Um. I'll say, because I was checking um, lengths of these three chapters on my audiobook, the the next chapter we're going to read, 25, is nearly an hour long, and then it's two short chapters after that, so that it's going to be almost the same length for all three as this time, but there's going to be one really long chapter, and I assume that, yeah, shit is going to pop off uh, in chapter 25. And then we'll get a little bit of fallout from that, is my guess. Um, yeah. That seems um, um We've been saying that for, like, four weeks now. But, <laughs> but now it has to be true. <laughs> I, because I do, you don't do an act break without anything popping off. I do think that this, uh, you know, this uh, Serini's Widow's Trial is, like, a, a real shift. Because, like, uh, it changes things for Raiden. It's uh, it's a big step for Serini, and it changes things actually a lot for Hraithen. Like it's weird to me how oh. 
how unbothered he claims to be by, like, his whole plan was, like, okay, we're gonna do, like, a fascist scapegoat thing with the Elantrians. We're gonna portray them as, like, these evil demons who are both, like, totally abject and weak, but also, like, really dangerous and, like, slavering at the gates. And we're gonna use that to, you know, control the people of Kai. And Mm -hmm. Serini is basically blowing that whole thing up by portraying them as, you know, um like poor unfortunates in need of charity um and it's really like i i do think it's a little silly to think that uh his whole like propaganda mission is thrown out by like one uh you know little like public photo op with food however Hraithan does basically seem to think like okay yeah uh this this is a i mean he says um this isn't gonna last but he also says my work with Elantris was only a small part of our plan. Um, and that's just not fucking true. <laughs> yeah, that's that's been the whole plan. At least as far as we've known. You know, maybe he has more stuff up his sleeve that he hasn't been revealing. But, like, why give him a POV chapter if he's not going to, like, reveal his secret plans to us? You know? Like, um, he, I just, he... Sorry, go on. I just want to quickly read... Uh, well, there is... That is true. It is true that he has other plans. I mean, yes, he, but... Uh, he called he, Fortin a subject of Provol. And said, I have secret plans, and then we cut and away from him. I'm ordering a poison. Yes. Remember? Yes. Like, there is and, at least one other plan at play. And there is all this stuff... I mean, there's all this stuff he's doing to try to put Telri on the throne. But mm-hmm. um, it's very unclear at this point how putting Telri on the throne actually helps with his conversion plan. Whereas, like, he's laid out... Uh, how he is going to influence the masses via the Elantrian thing. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, like, yeah, okay, I'm willing to believe he's got other stuff going on, especially with, like, some vague shit he says about the Telri plan here. Uh, once it was known that the king was bankrupt and Telri was rich, certain other pressures, mm. very significant ellipsis there, placed on the government would make for an easy, if abrupt, transfer in power. So, uh, you know, okay, he's got he's got more schemes relating to Tellery than we know about. Um, but I still think that it feels like he's had the rug pulled out from under him because the Elantrian plan is the main thing that we know about. Mm-hmm. Can I just read this paragraph that's really funny about the Elantrian plan being pulled out from under him? It's just, like, Brandon getting a little, like, flowery with the prose in a way that I don't think he's usually given to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hraithan watched with resignation as Elantris's monsters came placidly, refusing to ingest even a single guard, let alone the princess. His demons refused to perform, and he could see the disappointment in the crowd's faces. The princess's move had been masterful, casting, castrating Hraithan's devils with one sweep of the brutal scythe known as Truth. I had to pause to laugh at the brutal scythe known as Truth for a second. This book is so, like, so fixated on, like, Truth will always win. In in the way that, like, a lot of fiction is, like, love will always win. This book is, like, Truth will always win. And, like, you know, like, once... It goes on, um, hatred of Elantris would evaporate for people couldn't fear that which they pitied. Mm. Um, I'd like to make a CinemaSins dinging noise at that. 
<laughs> um, it's just like, and I, I and I do think that is a really dumb thing, and I don't think that's true. And also, it does lead this to being one of my favorite chapters in the book because. Hraithan thinking a lot of melodramatic things to himself about his plans uh, going awry was just really enjoyable to me. And, like, the the intense, like, melodrama of um, of that paragraph and of Hraithan's mood generally as he reflects on this plan is falling apart and Diloth... Also, really funny that last week I was speculating um, the reason that none of those guys wanted to be uh the head uh the head of the church last week i was like oh those guys don't want to do it, or that guy doesn't want to do it because he's secretly didelof's odiv but no it's not that these people are secretly odivs the thing is that um they're all scared that didelof is going to manipulate them if they take the position really good twist uh as dumb as um as dumb as Diloff being secretly old is a bad twist, like, these guys are kind of scared of, like, Diloff playing them, uh, is I, an amusing twist, I think, at least. Do you think this, yeah. the scythe called Truth is, like, a Dorethy, like, religious parable? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, okay, wait a minute. Wasn't, when we were told about the difference between his religions, didn't one of them like Truth? Am I remembering yeah. this shit wrong? Yes. 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 And specifically, it was... Because I, I can't remember... Specifically, it was Shu Korath. It was, like, focused on truth, I believe. And not Shu the Fjordan. Um, Wasn't it the other way around? Because Shu Korath was about unity? Okay, I'm okay, going to so control No, they're about here. three different... They're all about unity. It's unity of blank, unity of blank, and unity of something else. Yes. Let me control F unity here. Um, and hope I don't get spoiled on something. Okay, unity of love uh, is the Korath perspective, and unity of obedience is the Dareth perspective. So actually, neither of them is unity of truth. The thing about truth is that somebody says, truth will always win, even if... Well, it, there's that was also... What, that was what, um, uh, the, uh... The Karathi priest said to Hraithan yes. last chapter, yes. right? It was like, uh, basically, Omen said well, that? Like, yes, Omen said no, that. No, Omen. No, no, no. Earlier in the book, somebody, I think it was Raiden, said truth, or maybe Serini was like, truth can never be defeated even if no one believes in it. That You're absolutely right. And also, Omen showed up last chapter to... To once again highlight this theme that like truth can never be defeated, the truth will always come out. The truth that uh, Hraithen doesn't have any sort of faith in his heart like will always come out. You know. Uh, oh, I think you might be thinking about um, what Serini's dad said to her. Uh, yes, when yes. she skyped yes, him yes, yes, at yes. one point, um, uh, she was she was telling him about um, you know uh, the 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 succession problems, what Duke Tellery seems to be doing, uh, what Hraithen is up to, and, um, and she's talking, she, she's worried about, um, Shukorath being wiped out, and her father says, 
Truth can never be defeated, Sereni, even if people do forget about it occasionally. <laughs> um, the, the other thing that we might be thinking about with the Unities thing is that there is the parent religion, uh, Shu Kisig, which we haven't got much about, but might have been focused on, like, unity of truth or something like that. That might be what we were thinking of. Um, that I'm less sure of, but I, yeah. Um, anyway, um, so besides, besides, uh, worrying about Diloph, the other thing that Hraithan does in this chapter is brood about all the things that Omen said to him last time and about... Can't stop thinking about Jerry Hawkins, unfortunately. <laughs> He's still there in my brain. Um, he, and Hraithan, like, I don't think the summary talked about this, but Hraithan, like, goes and reads an old diary entry. Apparently, something that you're supposed to be doing is writing lots of diary entries, but uh, Hraithan's always been pretty bad about this. And he reads a diary entry from the day before he first joined the monastery, um, which is said in, like, kind of a, like, oh, at some point we're going to get flashbacks about his time in the monastery. Because That's where he learned the other arts. Yeah, because some shit happened in the monastery, and we know that the and monks are... scars. Yeah, the monks are really cool in, uh, in Fjordan. Um, but yeah, he reads this diary entry about how he used... To, uh, uh, from a time where he felt more faith um and now he's thinking all about like oh i don't i don't have my faith anymore why did i really want to like <clears throat> like he's thinking about what's my real reason for not wanting to uh just conquer this city i think my real reason is that i knew like the logic of, of a bloodless conquest would be more challenging and thought-provoking. And I'm really, I'm not a, uh, I'm all about, like, challenges and logic and, and like, thought-provoking questions and not about um, this sort of, like, ambition above all Diloph else. wouldn't care about a bloody revolution. Yeah, Diloph, Diloph would not. Yeah, th this is the other thing, is he contrasts himself against Diloph and Diloph will do fucking anything to get uh, Shudirath to be the dominant religion in the city. He doesn't care. Um, <clears throat> uh, it, yeah, this is also just more foreshadowing for, like, Hraithan is definitely going to end this book as a hero <laughs> in some way. <Yeah. laughs> like, for sure. I would like, I do agree that this crisis of faith of Hraithan's is, like, interesting and it's good character stuff. I do wish that we had more of an understanding of what faith actually means for a Dorethi. Because, like, yeah. when a person has faith, it's not just, like, a monolithic thing. A person has faith in something, you know? And, um, mm. like, uh... You know, I think his his little diary entry is is a little illuminating on what exactly Dorethy faith means or what it has meant to Hraithan. Um but it's a little like confusing to me. Um so, you know, do you mind if I read the diary entry? Yeah, please. I have found purpose, the book read. Before I lived, but I didn't know why. I have direction now. It gives glory to all that I do. I serve in Lord Jadith's empire, and my service is linked directly to him. I am important. So, Hraithan is still very important, and he still believes himself to be very important. Um, I don't even really see how 
you know, this idea that he sees the conversion of Kai as like uh, an intellectual challenge. I don't actually understand how in any way that contradicts his faith. Like, that seems like a a great way to pursue this life of service that he has found himself dedicated to. Um, but there is this idea that, like, logical thought and, like, um, you know, challenging work are very different from raw emotional faith. And I don't understand why that is. Maybe if I knew more about Dareth, uh, Shu Dareth, yeah. I would understand that. Yeah, I definitely think, like, the issue here is that, like, one, the religions are just not very well defined, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Dareth is the most defined one, but there's nothing to contrast it against. And also, like, the only character we have who is really faithful to Shudirith is Diloff, who is sort of this cartoon, like, over-exaggeration of what too much faith in, uh, in this will bring you to do, you know? Yeah. And, and so, like, I, I almost wish there was, like, a flashback chapter to how Hraithan used to be, so that we could maybe see, like, here's how he's changed over the years. Here's who he was when he um, conquered uh, Duladel, And here's how he's different now. Because, because yeah, there's not, like, a really good sense of, like... We're, we're being told that he is different than he used to be. And that he is different from other people who are really faithful. But we don't have any sort of, like like anybody to actually compare that with other than Dilov who is kind of like cartoonish. I also think it's a little strange like Dilov clearly has a deep uh passionate commitment to the things that he is doing. He believes that he is acting in the he is doing what is like religiously required of him. I I understand that about Dilov. However, he's also undermining someone who's in direct hierarchical position above him. He's not being very obedient. And he's, like, Mm -hmm. introducing this whole, like, Elantrians or demons element to his faith, which I don't actually think is, like, a a Dorethi position. That's just a thing Diloff believes. And so, while I understand the idea that, like, Diloff has great faith, I think a lot of religions in the real world don't view someone who is making up their own shit and, like, not behaving according to the, like, idea of obedience that's central to the religion. I, I don't... That's yeah. that's a weird way. That's a weird perspective to have on someone who has great faith. Um, like I, I think I understand the distinction that's being made. That like faith is really seen as an emotional experience, and it's not about like adherence necessarily to like the actual theology of the religion. But I think that's weird. I think it is very funny if the solution that um, Hraithen comes to in the next chapter is I'm telling. I'm going to tell Wern on you. I'm going to tell <laughs> Wern that you swore 30 odives and you're introducing new theology. Uh, I'm going to... Can I get an Inquisitor over here? <laughs> Isle 2? Like, it it's just very funny to think about him just like, okay, I guess... I'm going to go if, over your head. If you're going to manipulate the structure of the church, I'm going to bring the structure of the church to bear on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't 
I would be pretty surprised if that happened just because I don't think Hraithan wants that much scrutiny on his own dealings. Yeah. Like, I think if he called his boss or whoever, that boss would be like, uh, Hraithan, why are you bothering me? You haven't even conquered these people yet. <laughs> yeah, like, I literally sent you to take care of this problem so that I wouldn't have to, and now you're calling me to take care of the problem for you. <laughs> no, 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 there's just one guy. I just need one guy taken care of. <laughs> um... The one thing I'll say that I I think maybe like the credit I'll give this here is that I think like it's not necessarily that like like because Hraithan is so worried about like oh I'm being too like I'm giving myself a logic puzzle instead of just conquering the city I don't think it's that like logic and thought is in conflict with faith i think maybe what it is and i think it's being expressed poorly is that he's like if i was really about this i would just go the easiest path possible which is like the sword you know Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i'm not doing that i'm giving myself something harder because i enjoy being challenged and the more faithful thing would be to just do the like to just conquer the city and not even worry about it you know i mean I hear that, but on the other hand, this religion is obedience, and what he's been ordered to do is convert the city peacefully if possible. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know what, that's right, I, I hadn't thought about that, so, yeah. Um, I just, like, I, I just want to, sorry, go ahead. I think there's maybe an idea that Diloph is like a, such a true believer in Shudareth that he actually understands it better than the people at the top of the hierarchy, which is like... A perspective I can understand on a religion, but it's a bizarre one for a religion whose, like, central truth is obedience. <laughs> we are over halfway through with this book. No, mm-hmm. we're not. We're on page 310 out of 555. Yep. So... I feel like it just started. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I think... I get my my audiobook says fifty two percent. I don't know how much uh, bonus material is in my audiobook, but uh, yeah, you could check the chapters list. And... Well, it just says track blah blah blah. Yeah, it doesn't say names. That would tell you how much stuff there is. If there is nothing, then well, but I don't know how much bonus stuff. Yeah, I'm just saying you could see what bonus stuff there is. No, because it just says it. It won't say bonus anything. Anyway, um, we're we're over halfway through, and it feels like it just started. <laughs> we were halfway through, like before the hiatus. I think we were nearly halfway. Two seventy five would have been the halfway, but like, it does feel like stuff has only just started. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was a lot of like table setting, and now like, it doesn't feel like something's going to like crash like things aren't going to like crash into each other because only two things are in motion Mm -hmm. and i just i'm so ready to be done with this book yes yes um (sighs) i hope that the pace picks up pretty dramatically in the back half of the book just because like Something that I know that Brandon was really, I heard him say in like speaking about this book, he's like, 
I wanted to do a standalone fantasy book. So many fantasy books are series, and I wanted to do something that stood by itself, What didn't have sequels, didn't have prequels. Uh, there is there is a short story that follows this up, but, like, that's a different thing. Um, but, like, I don't, I don't know how you make that kind of the selling point of Elantris and then <sighs> write the slowest book ever where nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> um... Like, if I was going to make a standalone fantasy book, it would be action on page one, you know? Um, yeah. I know that we've said all this before, and I don't want to just, like, moan about it the rest of the podcast. It's just, like, it's, it's hard to, like, we're ha- we're more than halfway through the book, and specifically what's happening is we are asking questions about what is this book about? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And like we should know by now what the book is about and what is the the moving pieces both literally and like thematically are here and we should have a question that the book is asking broadly. Mm. I I think I think that question is I, I maybe we could quibble about the wording about this but like will truth prevail or that's like, just a thing a character said that's not a theme <laughs> i i feel like i feel like truth as some capital t ideal in brandon's head i think that is like the the big theme the big like thematic of this book and like you know Hraithen's like kind of deceitful sort of plan to capture the city uh without violence Versus, like, exposing the lies will bring people to see something. I, I'm i really trying to do a lot of work that I don't think Brandon has done. This this is a book where lots of characters tell lots of lies, but none of those lies complicate each other's lies. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also, like, um... I, I, I have to say, um... In my experience of Brandon's work, which is not as extensive as either of yours, I haven't found him to generally be making philosophical statements. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't to say that there's no themes in his work, or that we can't find a statement that he's making, but I don't think... Um, I don't feel like the book is trying to say something. I feel like it ends up saying stuff, but most of the stuff it ends up saying is about like uh how to uh control a people who are absolutely desperate for food right mm. um i don't know i yeah i think it, brandon is like a really interesting author for me to be fixated on somebody who is usually so like themes oriented um because I, I do think that, like, his books are often kind of light on themes. Like, there's... Or... I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Well, okay. I... Themes is a really broad thing to talk about. Maybe yes, we can yes. be a little more specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get there. It, it, it... I kind of like when books have, like, specific morals that they're trying to get across you know, or to, to think about or to discuss. And I don't always think that Brandon is that guy. I, I think there are morals, but 
I don't think that, like, he's not often the guy where two characters are going to sit in a room and argue about those things. He he does that, for sure. But, like, I think his stories are meant as much to entertain as to be concerned with sort of, like, philosophical ideas. Um, I, I feel like I can, I'm not getting at this quite right. I, I, I feel like I'm not saying what I want to say quite right, but... I just mean, like... Like, if somebody says, what's Elantris about? Mm-hmm. What do you say? Uh, it's about, like, um, an undead city and uh, the political maneuverings that are happening as uh, one person tries to take control of that city, someone else tries to conquer it and the city that surrounds it, and uh, a third person tries to stop that conquest. That's yeah. what it's about to me. And I wish maybe that had a little more action and oomph to it, too. <laughs> I wish, like, like, okay, we can give you the one-line pitch. That is a several-lines pitch, but, like, as close as you're going to get mm-hmm. to a one-line pitch on this book. And there's no, there's just no action. There's no movement in in that. Or there's very little. Yeah. I Like, what I would say is that I think that... If the story is about the kind of political drama of, you know, Raiden and Sereni and Hraithan all doing their various maneuvering where they're trying to take control of certain things and they're, like, they have these kind of, in some ways conflicting, in some ways kind of interlocking goals, then I wish all of them had been doing more stuff and interacting with each other more for the entire book. And And also, sorry. And if the book is about this kind of, conflict of like truth and religions and like uh what kind of like beliefs about the world are going to prevail that's been even more absent (laughs) like we don't know what these religions are or what they believe or even really what like Raiden believes about the world you know like even though Raiden clearly has a certain ideology it comes out in the way he acts um and I don't think he's like reflective on it um yeah, I was. What I was gonna say is that, like, it also, if this is going to be about political maneuvering, that, like, like Game of Thrones, for example, has lots <laughs> of characters lying to each other, maneuvering each other, making moves on each other, and also, like, four hundred words every book or more about like cultural customs and beliefs and superstitions, and like histories and contexts in which these moves are being made where like oh he's gonna appoint ned stark to the position of hand or whatever or warden or whatever that thing is Mm -hmm. that's a position that historically means something it means something when you are given that position and it's kind of cursed in some people's perspectives and like that's like a whole thing that you know and like there's no weight to most of the things being done here because we know kind of we we kind of have an idea of like how the money thing works where if you're the richest boy you get to put the crown on (laughs) (laughs) but there's like it's a 10 year old system and nobody remembers what life was like before that 
Mm -hmm. and nobody it's like the world came into being 10 years ago Mm -hmm. and yeah it just feels like every it feels like the book is lacking the door like the book is crumbling in our hands (laughs) as we read it (laughs) oh my god there's no like meat to it there's no soul to the world there's just facts sometimes about certain parts of the world well, and, and like, it's just hard for me to hold on to and like care about because I'm just not invested in this like story being told. Well, and like you bring up Game of Thrones and like I I've read one Game of Thrones book like 10 years ago, so I can't really talk about the mechanics of was, how that Was it the Game of Thrones? It was the Game of Thrones. <laughs> um uh I can't really talk about the mechanics of how that book or that series works, but the thing that I'll say is that if you want to do the the fantasy book that is really rooted in, like, all this sort of, like, political maneuvering and these sorts of things, I think that can work. I think you need a lot more than 600 pages. Like, that might just be the truth of it, is that the reason that fantasy novels might be really long is because you need a lot of context that is totally absent when you remove it from the real world like you might just need you might need to be a lot longer of a book than elantris is and i think maybe if you want to do a standalone fantasy novel like political maneuvering just can't be your main thing because like you don't have enough time and enough like enough words to establish here's what shudirith is here's what shukorath is Here's how they all, they both come from Shu Kisig. Here's this other religion. Now here are the characters. Here's like, the capstone on all that. You need to have people using magic. Yes. Like, oh. especially if you have Elantris as like a 1200 page epic about all this maneuvering. You also need to write in another character who does things. You need to, like, and beyond like political stuff, like Brandon likes magic and coming up with ideas of how magic works and what you can do with magic in this whole book we're halfway through we're more than halfway through we don't know how it works what it can do or anything about it we saw it heal a broken leg one time that's all that's the extent of it (laughs) and it's like it's a fantasy story and the magic is like a huge part of it and i understand if you want to write a story that is uh, it's a mystery book about why magic is broken. That's a whole other thing you could do that I don't think is what Brandon is doing. And, like, especially if you wanted to, like, keep interest and, like, be, like, to sell your world as more fantastical, even beyond the cultural context and, like, world-building stuff, like, have a guy do some cool stuff with his magic finger like draw symbols and make yeah. things happen in in any other sanderson book if if he was going to rewrite this book like i could imagine him keeping a lot of the stuff the same but introducing a fourth character who doesn't get a pov that often but like runs around elantris and does a lot of mysterious bullshit and raiden is like sees him is like who's that guy doing mysterious bullshit <laughs> You know? And, like, he said, like, he, one time Raiden catches him, and he's like, oh, well, I was using the blah 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 of the, you know, like, big Cosmere vocabulary words, and 
I'm not going to explain that to you, and now I'm going to fuck off. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that is what I want. But like, like, like uh, the the magic is really mysterious in this book, but just because we haven't seen it, and if there was a if there was a guy doing magic, there's just no adventure in this book. There's no adventure. Rayadin is conquering a city through words, and it's not adventurous. Mm-hmm. He's just he just like started Skyrim with a hundred speech. <laughs> I I honestly do think that it's possible to do a like uh you know a political drama about mm-hmm. maneuvering in a made up world that is both shorter and more effective than this. And I also think it's possible to do a magical adventure uh that is shorter and more effective than this. Like I don't uh I don't think we're going to be able to come up with the reason why this book is bad because it's just bad and it it didn't <laughs> have to be. Yeah. Yeah, if if we weren't reading this for the podcast, I you would have finished because you would have finished it all in 3 days. I would have finished it all in 3 days and been like, that was pretty bad, and then I would have moved on with my life, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't be like kind of trying to dissect the form of the book in the yeah. same way. I, I think. Go ahead. So no, please go ahead. I didn't mean to derail us all just grousing about no, this book, I... but I maybe it will help us like read it if we like understand some things about why we are unhappy. I don't know. Well, also I think yeah. it's good to do a temperature check as we hit the halfway mark and to do as we go into the the end of Act One. What were you going to say, Mark? I was just thinking that um, in, it's really, uh, like, I'm comparing this in my head right now to Three Parts Dead because I just read it. Three Parts Dead, I just checked, is like 300 pages long, okay? And it, I mean, it is part of a series, but it is not part of a series in the way that most of Brandon's novels series are or the way that A Song of Ice and Fire is in that it is like a complete thriller you don't need to read the later books to understand all of where the plot is going, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's in a made-up world with a made-up magic system and a bunch of made-up religions. And, like, does it go into all the theology of what those religions believe? No. I, that was one of the things I found kind of unsatisfying about it. Does it go into all the details about exactly how the magic works and why it functions the way it does? No. But it's a really satisfying book. It has a compelling plot that moves. It has some characters who are fun. The magic is a ton of fun, even if it's not laid out in like a sort of scientific way. Um, it's laid out in at least a specific enough way that you can you can have some guesses about how certain things in the plot are going to go if you understand what's possible in the magic and what isn't. And like, even if I was in some ways disappointed that like it didn't have as deep an engagement with like faith and theology as I'd like to see in a book that's kind of about those things. It did portray gods in a way where, like, they were, they had sort of defining features and, like, aesthetic qualities. I'm not trying to say, like, Three Parts Dead is the book that Elantris is trying to be, because it's really not. They're very different in a lot of ways. But the thing that is really, really striking to me is that it manages to get a lot of this stuff done in 300 fucking pages. <laughs> <sighs> There's just no reason for this book to be like it is. Yeah. 
And Brandon, yeah, in the future, Brandon is going to write longer books that are more effective than this, and Brandon is going to write much shorter books that are more effective than this. Like, he's going to go in both directions, and, like, Elantris just doesn't work. It, it just... It seems like he is kind of, like, aware that Elantris is a weak entry in his in his uh, bibliography. Oh, it's, I... <laughs> So, when I was in that Brandon Sanderson YouTube hole, um, and I watched that video where he talked about um, how he got the job finishing the Wheel of Time series, uh, and would he write more Wheel of Time books, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was really funny, he had this anecdote about um, Robert Jordan's widow, uh, Harriet, uh, I, can't re I can't remember her last name, but, um, so... Uh, the publisher sent her, and she worked at the same publisher uh, and that uh, Brandon was working for. So the publisher sends her a copy of Mistborn, and Brandon takes a brief aside to say, you know, like, Elantris was out at that point, but, like, my editor really felt like the sophomore novel is where uh, everything came together in, like, a, a more cohesive way. <laughs> it was very funny to see Brandon just pay really quick lip service to, oh, thank God he didn't send her Elantris. I would have <laughs> never got the Wheel of Time job if he sent her Elantris. <laughs> I think that's particularly striking because, like, isn't Elantris kind of more... Okay, I don't have that clear of a sense of this, but isn't Elantris a little more similar to the Wheel of Time? Yeah. Um, I have no idea. You're going to have to take this one. I, so I don't know a ton about the Wheel of Time, except that um, a guy I work with really loves Wheel of Time and has read them three times, like all of the books three times. Um, so I don't have a good sense of it. But it is defi definitely like a sort of, I mean, I think we, Way of, or, or I think Stormlight Archive is like Brandon's like foray into this genre in a big way. But um, I think it's like a, like epic fantasy that is really trying to synthesize like sort of adventure stuff and political stuff it is like sort of a seven sort of like 80s fantasy like um written by a guy who who grows up on tolkien and wants to tell an even bigger more epic version of like his like take on tolkien type stuff and i i think elantris in that way fits the sort of like very talky very like politically focused like the machinations of the world and cultures clashing i think i once again i haven't read wheel of time i get the impression that that's maybe a big part of wheel of time is like cultures and like histories in the sort of way that elantris is whereas mistborn at least the first book the rest of the series like i think it gets more expensive but the first book is an adventure novel like at its heart it is a lot of things but it is an action adventure novel uh in a way that i don't know that wheel of time is haven't read it Brand but that's my impression brandon pitches mistborn as a heist novel in a fantasy world yeah that's like and, yeah and you know what? that's the thing is that you can sell mistborn as heist novel fantasy world whereas i don't have that for elantris <laughs> you know yeah the the other like major thing that came to my mind was just that like uh in being sort of Tolkien inspired my sense is that the wheel of time feels like it's set in some kind of idea of medieval Europe, which Elantris also definitely is. 
And yes. Mistborn, on the other hand, my sense is that it's kind of steampunk. <laughs> it is um, like it is like a pre-industrial Europe, but not like it, like just barely pre like maybe like 1700s or something i don't know it is steampunky yeah. but the 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 second mistborn series uh is way more steampunky the the major point that i was just trying to make is that it seems to me like the kind of vibes of the setting yeah, are a little yeah, more absolutely. similar um, yeah absolutely yeah um <sighs> Does that do it for this episode, maybe? Yeah, I think so. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm, I'm so also tired. <laughs> um, Mark, where can people find you online? Oh, uh, you can find my Twitter account at Char Asnablunt, um, and you can find my other podcast, uh, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, which is a Moby Dick podcast. Um, on the Abnormal Mapping Network. Uh, I think it's abnormalmapping.com slash whale. Yep. Um, yeah. I had to write that in the episode description last time. <laughs> uh, Nora, where can people find you? Find me on Twitter at neither Nora. You can follow my new podcast, Attention Duelists, on Twitter at Attack Position. We're replacing We Are the Champions with a Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast. League of Legends just got too dire. Yeah. When the guy who... One of the co-founders of Riot Games started posting about race science on Twitter, I was like, yeah, we gotta... We gotta make a change here. (laughs) Like, there are... At some point, it just became untenable. So, uh, we're watching Yu-Gi-Oh! now. Starting with Yu-Gi-Oh, the 1998 anime series from the same director who did the first two seasons of series, I guess, of Digimon. Oh, I didn't know that part. Known as Digimon Adventure one and two. This is this is known in the U.S. as season zero of Yu-Gi-Oh. Yes, because uh, it did. It was never like dubbed or officially subbed in any way. Yeah. So a um, lot of stuff is weird and different. Yeah. Tonally. From later things. I don't have a good sense of, like, is that just, like, a totally different, like, they didn't even have Duelist Kingdom in mind when they were gonna, when they were making that show? Probably not. Okay. Like, I think they start playing card games by the end of it, but it definitely did not become the card game show until... Until Duelist Kingdom. Yeah. Duel Monsters, please. Duelist Kingdom is the first arc of Duel Monsters. Okay. It was not clear on the distinction. Thank you. Um... You can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. If, uh, if you sh- want to check out my other podcast, kind of fumbled that sentence there. Um, you should check out and then an aeroplane, which is a podcast that will be ending very soon. Um, we have now covered every single Ghibli film. We watched them all. We didn't like a lot of them. We were kind of down and cynical and <laughs> mean a lot of the time. It's rough when you watch the best one first. It's it's really rough when the very first movie you watch, or the the second movie. The first. We did watch Castle of Cagliostro, which you like best. You really like Cagliostro. It, you're not on the podcast. M and I, the second movie we watched is Nausicaa, which is 
one of both our favorite movies, I want to say. And uh, it's really hard to do a podcast where you're always living in the shadow of how great Nausicaa is. <laughs> so, um, sure. but... is that we should be grateful that we're starting our podcast with a totally dog shit book? Yeah, yeah. Definitely the arc of... Um, the arc of And Then an Aeroplane was... It really never quite hit the same after like 1992, maybe. I, I could be wrong about that number. Um, and so in that way, there's nowhere to go but up from Elantris. Um, th- there are some Sanderson books I've read that I'm kind of low on, but none as much as Elantris. Elantris hey, is really bad. The other ex- well-accepted low point, I feel like, in within fandom spaces of Sanderson's writing is the comic book and that's a comic book which means it will take like a third as much time yeah to read we will cover so we will cover the first graphic novel the second graphic novel and the third graphic novel each is its own episode and then after three episodes we'll be out we'll be done <laughs> yeah you know uh, you know that's like the what i have gathered to be the other low point from a fandom perspective there's an there's only one other book that i've started from sanderson that i'm like kind of lukewarm on but you know yeah that's gonna happen there's one i don't like but we won't cover it for years and years and so there's no point in getting into it right now and i do like it so we'll fight then yeah we'll just have a fight um anyway yeah you should check out the internet airplane i'm really proud of the work we did there will be one more episode we are going to watch the documentary uh kingdom of dreams and madness but uh like if you have a ghibli movie that you like like, for example, Nausicaa or Spirited Away. Send us a DVD of it. Go listen to the episode. <laughs> what? No. And then uh, normalmapping.com slash aeroplane, I think. Like, um, just go listen to the podcast. Stop shitposting while I'm plugging. Is the Kingdom of <laughs> Dreams and Madness adjacent to the Empire of Dreams? Which is the... This... I, bel- I would imagine that that title is, like, in a similar... <laughs> like, somebody had... Whatever. Anyway. Uh, I have one more plug. Yes. Which is, uh, journal updated. We're gonna play tyranny. Uh, we're, we are playing tyranny this month. You're stealing my co-host. What? You're stealing my co-host from Aeroplane and yes, putting them onto journal updated for. One we month. haven't announced that, but yes, M is gonna be on. Oh, you haven't <laughs> announced that? <laughs> no. I assumed you'd announce that I at don't the end of we've... disco. Uh, no, we didn't. Oh, well. So you know, uh, we didn't announce you ahead of time. Well, I need no introduction. <laughs> anyway, and then after that, we're doing Bioshock. So look forward to that. I love that game, despite everything. Um, but that's it for Ars Arcanum. And so until next time, remember, truth will always <laughs> win, even if people forget about it sometimes. I Or I like the... I'll, thanks, I'll, Brandon. I'll sign off. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Ha, 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 ha.